previously on Kyle XY. I said, whoever threw that paper, your mom's a hoe. You know what I don't get? Daylight savings time. And I have a real issue with the freaking government. <laughs> what a story, Mark. The low, the closest drug dealer to the customer. Not their supplier. Not the supplier's supplier. Not their supplier, which is the government. <laughs> the government. <laughs> I'll be taking whatever you're carrying. After you're dead, of course. Hi, I'm Christian Patterson, and welcome to the Society Show. People of Earth, how are you? Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Society Show on tonight's show. Christian Patterson, the one who's always here. Christian Patterson, the one who's also always here and is slightly funnier. Christian Patterson, the singing one. And Christian Patterson, one of the few hosts that we cycle through every now and again that you never remember. And I'm your host, Christian Patterson. Come on down, let's have some fun. Hello, and thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to the Society Show, where everything's made up and the points don't matter. That's right, points are like... U.S. government attempts to stop union busting. They just don't matter. This is William Hong, and you're listening to the Society Show. Is that good enough for you, asshole? Really, just just beef. Not. Can you have like ketchup no, on it? Nothing. That's an awfully hot coffee pot. Should I drop it on Donald Trump? Probably not. Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and the world from the Lorena Bobbitt Theater, where bathrooms are for customers only. Beautiful North Seattle. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your host, a man who is giving the Oregon State Police a week off, Christian Patterson. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay! I am a man. Well, this is The Society Show. I hope you had a uh, great Administrative Professionals Day last week. I hope you had a great Diversify Your Portfolio Day. I've been enjoying opening these episodes with different holidays. So today is May 5th, 2022. Yesterday was May the 4th be with you, but let's see what holidays are on May 5th. May 5th is, of course, Cinco de Mayo. We all knew that, so happy Cinco de Mayo. But as we also know, there's a lot of uh, holidays that lay beneath the surface. So what else is celebrated on May 5th? We have Cartoonist Day. What? Europe Day. What? 
Hand hygiene day. What? Hug a shed and take a selfie day. What? International Midwives Day. What? Museum Lovers Day. What? National Hoagie Day. What? National Shot Silence the Shame Day, whatever that means. What? There's a few more, but I'll end with this one. Happy Oyster Day. What? And of course, as you may or may not know, this is also Air Quality Awareness Week. What? Arson Awareness Week. What? And Be Kind to Animals Week. What? It's also Drinking Water Week. What? <laughs> it is also, and I'm not kidding, International Clitoris Awareness Week. What? So, uh, you have a lot of, a lot of researching to do to celebrate all these holidays. So, uh, anyway, welcome to the show. And uh, one thing I do want to announce at the uh, top of the show is that... So, last week I talked about Elon Musk attempting to buy Twitter. And in that time, it went from seeming not likely when I recorded it to seeming like it was a for sure deal going to go through. And now it's seeming like, well, this deal will actually take months to ne negotiate. And... I mean, Elon Musk is essentially making this transaction by selling a bunch of Tesla stock. And because of that, a lot of people started preemptively selling their Tesla stock. So there are rumors that maybe Elon Musk won't be able to go through with it. And I'm not convinced he's going to be able to go through with it either. We shall see though. I see miracles all around me. Stop and look around, it's all astounding. But that brings me to my next point. I gotta be honest, I I mean if you listen to the show, you know I freaking hate Elon Musk's. It's not a secret. But whenever I go online now, I feel like all I see is stuff about Elon Musk. Like there's people who are you know, basically sucking him off, and then there's also people who are like, he sucks, and then there's discourse about, like, him, and then discourse about the discourse about him, and then he tweets about this or that, and then everyone has to talk about that, so... Um, even though Elon Musk is on the official society show denunciation list, which means... I typically talk about people on that list more, or I just think they're especially dubious people that I will be calling out. Um, even though he's on that list, I'm not really going to take the time to uh, talk about him much, at least not for now. I just, the only reason I brought up that it's now looking like he may be Twitter is to follow up on last week, but I'm also using this opportunity to say we will not be talking about him, at least for a while, after this. Elon Musk has denied that he meant to call a British cave diver a pedophile when he dubbed the guy pedo guy on social media. Now, I haven't had a great week. I've been having some, I've been feeling just like followed by bad vibes. And I, there's like bad vibes lingering around me that I'm not happy about. And uh, some of it is more like interpersonal or based on my life. How's it going? But then also some of it is just dumb stuff. Like, 
I the other night I got a freaking giant just like finger full of hot sauce in my eye. It was maybe one of the most painful things I had ever felt. Um, it w- it only took like twenty minutes before it was back to normal, but it felt so bad. I legitimately thought I had like gone blind for a minute. Um. And then one day at work, the alarms got all broken, right? And all of the alarms at every door started going off at the same time, nonstop. Uh, it was infuriating. It made me go insane. That's just scratching the surface. But, at, you know, I don't want to gripe too much. That's not what this show's about. But I want to say that because I am happy to be doing my show. It's a, a great day to do one. And just, it's all good vibes now. Have a good life. We will see you soon. Another thing I learned recently, this pa- I think it was this past week, I was at least thinking about it a lot this past week, is I learned some really troubling things about my home state. This is KTSS Channel 9 News, the local news station. So I live in Washington State, as you know, and on the Kitsap Peninsula. So if you're not familiar with Washington State geography, Seattle is on a little isthmus between Lake Washington and the Puget Sound. On the opposite, or in Puget Sound, there's some islands. If you go beyond the islands, there's the Kitsap Peninsula. And you kind of have to zoom in to see it on a map because you might see what is like the Olympic Peninsula. That's not what I'm talking about. The Kitsap Peninsula is small with a lot of smaller peninsulas growing off of it, basically. Um, and at, towards the tip of the Kitsap Peninsula is a place called Bangor. Banger, like Maine, Banger, Maine, Bangor Trident Base. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the Bangor Trident Base has so many nuclear weapons. How many nuclear weapons is it? Well, let me tell you. Let's say you took all the nuclear weapons in the world and then you divided them by country. So who would have the most nuclear weapons? The U.S.? Yes, the U.S. is by far the most nuclear weapons. Then Russia. Well, let's say you split off the Kitsap Peninsula from the rest of the U.S. Where would Kitsap Peninsula place? It would be number one, U.S., number two, Russia, number three, the Kitsap Peninsula. There are more nuclear weapons on the Kitsap Peninsula than any other country by like in total except for the US and Russia. That is how many freaking nuclear weapons are here. I do not feel like it, it's just such a sad thing to think about. Like not only did we, you know, we as in like white settlers to the Pacific Northwest, I guess. I mean, I I can lump lump myself in there, I suppose. We 
developed this land. Um, we completely changed it from the way like indigenous people had it. It's like a different society now. We've paved over a lot of the beauty and all that. And then not only that, but we have to park a bunch of nuclear submarines not that far away. And, I mean, this place is just, I mean, if a nuclear war breaks out, I'm not going to live to know it. Because this the Kitsap Peninsula will be one of the first targets of a nuclear blast. And, like, it's just, it's really such an immense tragedy that that is the case. And I, that made me think, like, no more weapons in Washington State. We do not want them there. And I'm still, like, I would fight for that cause. No more weapons, no more nuclear weapons in Washington State. Please, just move them somewhere else. But then I was like, why just Washington, though? Like, if I'm, if I feel this squeamish, terrible feeling about it, um, because it's a, a hundred miles or so, probably less. I, I don't even know. As the bird flies, it's probably a hundred miles. Let's see how long it would take to drive to the, uh, Banger military base. If I took the ferry, it would be like less than two hours. It's it's 43 miles away, and I'm that's like driving. That's not like the straight line. It's within like 20 miles of me, maybe. Because you kind of have to drive a long, weird way. Anyway, that's besides the point. The point is, like, if I'm not okay with nuclear weapons being within 35 miles of me, why would I be okay with them being anywhere else? And I'm generally, like, I'm not that critical of nuclear energy, to be honest. But if, like, if we'd have to sacrifice nuclear energy to get rid of nuclear weapons, I would be completely in favor for it. It also, you know, I had a little flashback to when I went to Vancouver, B.C. as a kid. I remember there being signs that say, Welcome to Vancouver, a nuclear weapon-free city. And I was like, ha, that's so funny. Why would it say that? Like, it doesn't need to say that. I was already assuming that there's no nuclear weapons. But they, that is something they feel they have to say because they're really not that far from a giant nuclear arsenal it's a an immense tragedy honestly it's it's upsetting to me that there are so many nuclear weapons in the world and i guess i say i know i sound naive like we all we all know this about nuclear weapons we all wish they weren't there but like really it just sucks Now, having said all that, let's move on to a new segment, shall we? I'm going to talk about some movies I've seen recently, but first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. This episode is brought to you by Olay, your best beautiful, ageless Olay. Love the skin you're in. 
lie about your age, hide the evidence. Every night you see a dirty film and don't even know it. Olay. Thank you for sponsoring the show, Olay. Now, I haven't done this since the show came back, but I do like to periodically give some uh, media reviews, talk about some things in the media. So, um, I'm going to talk about some movies I've seen recently. Uh, I watched a few Los Angeles movies before I went to L.A. They were Inherent Vice, Jackie Brown, and Mulholland Drive. Now, I'll start with Inherent Vice. I thought this movie was really good. In fact, it's probably my second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie after There Will Be Blood. Uh, There's just a lot of interesting choices in this movie. And a big reason is I haven't read Inherent Vice, the Thomas Pynchon novel. But I, I have read other Thomas Pynchon novels and I know how he writes. And this feels really loyal to the way in which he writes, which is an interesting choice for a movie because the way he writes is not really cinematic. A a thing in this movie is like, scenes will like start and end kind of early, like you feel like you get a lot of like small talk and then something important happens and then the scene cuts off abruptly or just kind of the it doesn't feel like here's the framed scene all the info right in this little scene and then we move on it's a little more disjointed than that and there's also just like a lot of plot points that are kind of hard to follow but and kind of absurd but intriguing and so I think that movie did that really well. You probably have to pay attention to it at least somewhat well to really get some of it I think. But anyway the next movie I watched was Jackie Brown. Now this is the Quentin Tarantino movie starring Pam Greer. Pam Greer plays the starring role of Jackie Brown. I will say I'm not a big Quentin Tarantino fan. I I just don't like some of his choices and the movies by him I do like. Like I like Pulp Fiction. I'm not crazy about it, and I didn't really like Django Unchained. I was like, this movie's way too damn long. What I was expecting Django Unchained to be like, and maybe this is my own fault because that was no joke, the first Quentin Tarantino movie I saw, but people talk about how like violent and over-the-top his movies are. I was expecting a tight 90-minute where a former slave goes around just massacring slave masters. Um, but instead, it's all of this, like, Christoph Waltz and Leonardo DiCaprio just talking their asses off. Just, bleh, bleh, bleh. Oh, I want to meet Julep. Oh, you want to meet Julep, Asa? Oh, it's like, just shut up. I really, I'm not a fan of that movie. Um, but I haven't seen many Quentin Tarantino movies. Anyway, the point I'm getting at is Jackie Brown is probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie I've seen. 
I don't know if it's a coincidence that it's his only original film, because it is, in fact, an adaptation of the Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch, which I have not read, but I have a co-worker who's a huge Elmore Leonard fan, and he says that the book is really good, it's Leonard at, the, at his best, and so... It, I mean, and I also know that Quentin Tarantino changed a lot for the movie, so it's maybe not fair to be like, oh, well, his one good movie is an adaptation. Like, I don't know if that's exactly the case, uh, but it is a really fun movie, and the soundtrack's good. I really like the... They play that song a lot in that movie. Um, So I recommend it. The next movie I would like to talk about is Mulholland Drive. And I mean, it's just a great movie in general. There's a lot of really bizarre things about it that are interesting and... um, I want to talk about the ending, so spoiler alerts if you've never seen it. Even if you haven't seen it, you may have heard about the twist in the ending, but basically, so there's two main characters, a woman who just moves to Hollywood and is living at her aunt's house, and a woman she's trying to help who completely forgot their identity. They... are basically trying to figure out her identity and end up going to a house that they believe could have been hers or her roommates or someone she knows. They go into the house, sneak in, and find the woman dead. They then return back home to the the blonde woman, the woman who just moved to Hollywood's house, And the woman who forgot her identity opens this, like, blue cube and everything changes. Basically, it's, like, a very similar environment with a lot of the same characters, um, but their roles are swapped. The woman who forgot her identity, for example, is now dating a movie director who was in earlier parts of the movie. And, um, there's just a a bunch of little, like, swaps like this. For example, the Naomi Watts character, who was the main character, has been swapped with the woman they found dead. And, um, so the way a lot of people read this, uh, scene, and I'm going to offer my own explanation and push back against the way people read it, is they see it as the first two-thirds or so of the movie are a dream sequence and then the last bit after the twist is reality and they say this because the dream sequence is more optimistic um more sur- or the 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 first part the first two or so hours is more optimistic more uh coherent more kind of happy and childlike almost and then the shift happens and things are really dark and bad and shitty 
and it has a tragic ending and but i don't read into the idea i don't buy the idea that the the first bit of it was all a dream sequence and the last part was reality because the last part feels more like a dream everything there's almost like vaseline put over the camera and it feels a lot more disjointed a lot less real um a lot more just like dreamlike honestly and then another way people read it is the characters are archetypes and the situations they are in are archetypal they're not to be read as like specific characters it's more the idea and i think that's definitely a more accurate way of reading the the scene but i will offer if you ever watch this movie and you've seen it before and you want to like f- learn more about the ending or think about it a different way you can read the ending in a lot of ways as what happens before the movie starts, before the brunette character forgets her or loses her memory. Um, because I guess just to go full spoilers, um, there's implications that she was killed when she was leaving a, heart, a party up in the Hollywood Hills. And um, the, the way the movie starts is she's in a car accident and is presumed dead, but escapes with amnesia. So you almost could read what happened, and, and it works in most ways. Like, there's a couple little details that don't make sense if you read it that way. But you can read the last part of the movie as what happens before the movie starts. Um, that's just the, I mean, and it works it like, I rarely see people online mention that you can do this, but it does work in most ways. So these next few movies, I'm not going to say much about them. I'm going to, I wanted to focus on those three, but, uh, I watched Scanners. That's a great Cronenberg movie. I mean, it has the classic head explosion. I will say, I mean, if you're expecting a bunch of head explosions, there's one, and then there's a few other pretty gory scenes, but it it is, it is kind of slow at moments, um... But it's a great movie. I recommend it. It has a lot to say about, like, the politics of the time. and But not it doesn't lay it on too hard. Um, so I recommend it. The next movie I want to talk about is Deep Water, which is a Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas movie where they are in... I'll I'll explain the premise. It's a pretty stupid movie. Uh, But it was... I guess they made some interesting choices in it. Basically, Ben Affleck is dating a much younger woman. And she she is really into, like, dating other men. And kind of openly and publicly. And he starts like making threats to the boyfriend and it reveals that he has already killed someone um who his wife had been dating and implies that he's gonna kill him too and so he 
but then there's a part where they also say that the guy he was claiming to have killed was found to be shot by someone else. I don't know if he like covered his tracks really well or if he was lying. It they don't explain it. And then there's this new love interest for Anna de Armas, who is a piano teacher, and they have this pool party with their friends. That's a weird thing about this movie is all these like weird parties with friends where like she's cheating and no one really seems to care. Like they'll kind of comment on it. It's weird. But anyway, they have sex in the pool or they're, they get frisky in the pool. It's kind of unclear what they're doing. And then it starts raining super hard. So they all go inside and then they look out and Anna Armis's boy toy is dead in the pool. And I mean, that's where I'll leave it. it I kind of gave away about at least half of it. But if you want to watch kind of a strange erotic thriller that's not great i mean it's entertaining (laughs) i i didn't hate watching it it's just not very good and the last movie i will talk about is the power of the dog this is the netflix western starring primarily benedict cumperbean and jesse plemons and i will say I didn't think this movie was that good. I thought it was okay. It's not great. I don't think it deserves to be nominated for all the awards it was nominated for. Nothing against it, but it was just a little flat. There wasn't that much to it. My favorite part of it is the Bronco Henry bit, which if you've seen it, basically Benedict Cumberbatch's character is heavily implied to be deeply in the closet, but he's always talking about like, oh my, my favorite guy, Bronco Henry. I used to go riding with Bronco Henry. You want to sit on Bronco Henry's saddle? It's, uh, (laughs) it's pretty funny how much he talks about Bronco Henry. In fact, I think the movie would have been better if it was called Bronco Henry. The Power of the Dog, that's kind of a stupid name. But it's fine, but I thought it was kind of overrated. I gave my heart and soul to you, girl. Didn't I do it, baby? Didn't I do it, baby? Now, this next segment... um I've I've talked about all these things on the show before, but I just want to bring it up and talk about it again, and maybe it'll I'll have a segment where I have all these details really ironed out, just ironclad as hell. But I want to bring attention to the Central Intelligence Agency's operation called Timbo- Timber Sycamore. Now, I'm not even going to be going deep into this. Like, I'm mostly sourcing this off of the Wikipedia page for Timber Sycamore. I mean, I've looked at other things, so I'm not just reading it off of it. But my point is, this is all widely available information. Basically, what the program was is... What this article point or this What the Wikipedia page points out and is very interesting is 
The idea was first brought up in 2012 by uh, CIA Director David Petraeus, and Obama rejected the proposal but later agreed because uh, King Abdullah II of Jordan and Benjamin Netanyahu were urging it to happen. So what exactly is this program that the CIA ran with the help of the GIP and... GID, which is the intelligence agency of Saudi Arabia. So U.S. and Saudi intelligence did this program. What was it? Hmm. Basically, the CIA was like funneling a ton of arms to the rebel forces fighting against Assad during the Syrian civil war. They were not only like funneling in supplies, but also training rebels and what this basically resulted in and they will say like oh well this is what inadvertently happened this was the blowback but no this was an intended consequence is many of those weapons went into black markets and those black markets always flipped the weapons to isis like, most of these weapons ended up going to ISIS. There, as you may have heard, there were situations during the Syrian civil war where, like, one faction was shooting at another with U.S. military weapons, and one faction was shooting at another with CIA weapons. And it's not even just, like, that they were giving these weapons and they'd flip them to arms dealers who'd put them in a black market. Sometimes they were going directly to people in ISIS, and sometimes they were going directly to people who would shortly join ISIS because a lot of these rebels they were training were just like dopes who were like, I hate the Assad regime, and they didn't really have any sort of like conventional military organization they were just like wanting to fight so they'd get this training and weaponry and then immediately go join isis and i mean there there is so much more i could get into that but i just you know this is something i've been thinking about it's something i think about a lot you know when you think about how many people in the middle east just see isis as completely u.s supported like that is a widely held belief in the middle east what what the u.s government wants us to think here in the u.s is oh those barbarians who who will join forces like isis and al-qaeda we have to just stop all these barbarians when isis would at the very least would not be as powerful as it was without the u.s i can't say they wouldn't exist but they did receive uh extreme and unbelievable amounts of weaponry and training and this idea that oh they just inadvertently got funneled to isis fighters that doesn't really happen i'm sorry but it doesn't really happen that way typically What happens is the CIA, which controls a bunch of all these, like, these networks, or at least has ties to them, puts their weapons and money in these networks as a way to launder them. 
CIA weaponry does not accidentally get into the hands of the wrong people in mass like this. It happens deliberately. I get I get that it's a really hard pill to swallow for some people, maybe not. For me, I mean, I was just like, when this came out uh, in like 2016, I was like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that seems as obvious as hell to me, but... And this is only a fraction of the ways that the CIA has co- covertly interfered in the Middle East. Like, only a fraction of a fraction. But it is one of the more egregious examples. And now, I uh, want to close out the show talking about Volker shock. So this is gonna be a segment that I used to do more. Now I do it sparingly. Called State of the State. The State of the State. State of the State. Now for this State of the State, we'll be talking about Volker shock and what exactly it means. Because I see Volker shock as the defining policy of the U.S.'s turn to neoliberalism. So I'm gonna go into what specifically Volker shock is and how it led to neoliberalism and which policies and social formations it worked with in tandem to create those circumstances. So like like I said, I want to talk about Volker shock because a lot of people talk about it, but no one really explains what it is. And I think we might be getting to some Volker shock real soon here in the U.S. And like, I don't really have a collegiate economic understanding. I didn't study economics in school, so I looked into it a lot and it seemed too complicated to understand. But after reading more, it became clear piece by piece what Volker shock is as I understand it. So this is my understanding. If you hear someone talking about Volker shock in a BS way, you can say, no, I under vol- understand Volker shock. It was really this. That's wh- I want you to get into a place where you could kind of have a grasp of what it is and say that to someone. So the neoliberalism era, as I understand it, like I said, came to exist in the 70s in several countries, especially here in the U.S., and it really became cemented as the global economic mode in the 80s and 90s up through the 2000s, but the transition, you know, it started in the 70s. So, the neoliberal model was an alternative to the Keynesian model. And there's that famous quote where Milton Freeman said it, but also Nixon, Richard Nixon said it, and it's attributed to him more, but he famously said, we're all Keynesian now. Uh, and he said that when he was implementing more like interventionist policies to keep the economy afloat. But Nixon said this, in response to the U.S. abandoning the Bretton Woods system, which terminated the convertibility of dollars to gold and made the U.S. dollar a fiat currency. So it's kind of ironic he said we're all Keynesian now because this 
change that leaving Bretton Woods was one of the biggest progenitors to neoliberalism. Like, if Volkershock cemented it, then making the U.S. dollar a fiat currency and no longer convertible to gold uh, was, like, the, the, the forerunner of Volkershock. Because with such a dramatic monetary change at the moment where everyone was Keynesian, that was the moment when a new model of capitalism needed to be able to needed to be able to be developed. And in the U.S., the transition towards neoliberalism is most exemplified, as I have been saying, by Volcker Shock, which was a series of economic uh, policies. And so think about it like this. Paul Volcker's goal was to reduce inflation. This plays into the current day because inflation is so freaking bad right now. That's why I think we might be in for some Volcker Shock. The way he planned on reducing inflation was by reducing the amount of money supply added to the economy. So he rolled back the amount of money being pumped into the U.S. economy. And, you know, that makes sense. But there's a lot more consequences than just that. With less money being added, banks began charging higher interest. In other words, the banks want the money line to continue going up. If the government isn't pumping money in, then they pull more money up through higher interest. If it's not coming down from the banks, it's coming up from common people. It creates a de facto tax where the poorest people are giving more in interest. Banks were getting a higher proportion of their income uh, from the interest rates rates to make up the money they were losing from the government. And the thing about Volcker shock is, that's what we call it in the U.S. because it's associated with Paul Volcker. But while Volcker shock was happening in the U.S., it was happening all over the world, like especially in G7 countries, U.S., Canada, U.K., West Germany, Germany, Italy, France, and Japan. And I'm not just like bringing up the G7 and G7 countries arbitrarily. G7 was created in response to the 1973 oil crisis and it originated with finance ministers meeting up around the time of Volcker shock and similar financial things were happening in other countries. So the G7 was kind of cementing itself as a major global political force for neoliberalism. And, of course, neoliberalism was created from several factors. Volcker shock was the financial shift, but there was also globalization and the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs to developing countries. This obviously coincides with the deindustrialization of the developed countries and their shifts to service economies. 
And this also obviously coincides with decolonization when the European and American colonial powers began granting national sovereignty to former colonies, but of course those colonies became subjugated more towards the global capitalist interests rather than like a state apparatus directly. And all of these changes kind of go hand in hand, um, and they were happening all over the world, not just in the U.S. Um, in the 80s, the U.S., U.K., France, West Germany, and Japan signed an agreement called the Plaza Accord, where the U.S. basically agreed to depreciate their dollar, i.e., like, they tried to make their dollar weaker to more align with other countries currencies and then the 1987 Louvre accord which stopped the u.s dollar depreciation anyway the whole point is there's plenty of economic agreements with similar goals like the plaza accords um their specifics are byzantine and hard to understand but ultimately they existed to expand global capital and calcify the current capitalist order and capitalist class and what we can take from this is that since volker shock happened we have been stuck in a neoliberal globalized economy and the ramifications of that are getting worse and worse as the contradictions from this system get more tense. Inequality has not only been getting worse since then, but it's the, probably the worst it has ever been, especially on a global scale. And uh, that is... State of the state. The state of the state. State of the state. And with that... You have been listening to The Society Show. My name is Christian. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool is is spelled I-Z, Christian I-Z cool. You can also follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can learn a lot more about the podcast and find other ways to listen at societyshow.net. And with that, I hope you have a great rest of your week, a great weekend, and a great next week. We will be back next week, same time, same place, live to tape. This is The Society Show. Hello, I'm from California, or Texas, or New York. And I just moved to Gentrified City. Before I moved here, I had plenty of hobbies. I used to Insert athletic hobby. And Insert creative hobby. But now that I moved to Gentrified City, I only have one hobby, and that is complaining about traffic and how people drive on Reddit. All I do is go work at... Insert tech company. Then drive home. Then I spend my nights complaining on Reddit about how awful the drivers here. Me and the majority of the city's population 
which is all people who moved here from California or Texas or New York. We all agree that gentrified city has the absolute worst drivers on the gentrified cities subreddit. I even made a poll. They were all like, I wish the drivers were like how they are in California or Texas or New York. And that's my only hobby now is talking about that.